First John chapter 3, verses 11 to 15. Give ear to the word of God. John writes, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be, do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. The sentence of reading of God's word, you may be seated. Well, here in, in our text, what John uh, does is he continues a theme that he started back in verse 10. Verse 10 was kind of a transition from one theme to, to another related theme. Uh, namely, uh, he mentioned there that whoever does not love his brother in the Lord is not a true child of God. Uh, not only did John touch on this subject earlier in the book in chapter 2, verses 7 through 11, but he's going to touch on it again later in the book in the next chapter, First uh, John 4, 20 to 21. So that the love of the brethren uh, is a central theme in, in this letter. It's not the only theme, but it's one of the most important things. There's a reason John keeps bringing it back up, and that is because in some ways it is, it's a, a, has a central importance to what John is teaching us in this epistle. Uh, if you might recall, if you've been here for most of these studies, uh, the love of the brethren is one of the three, I, we call them tests for lack of a better term. It's one of the three tests that John presents to us in this book, in this letter, uh, of genuine Christian faith. Of, of new life in Christ, of being a child of God, being born again, all those things. A test of those who actually know the Lord. One of them is sincere love of the brethren. The other two, if you might know, uh, one of them is obedience to God's commands. Not perfect obedience, but sincere obedience to God's command. Uh, and the other one is holding to the truth of Christ. Those are the three tests by which we can know and be assured that our faith is real and that we really do know the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, love of the brethren is one of the ways that we can be assured that we who have believed on Christ for salvation really do have eternal life. That's really the, the theme of the book. My goodness. Uh, that's the theme of the book uh, back in chapter 5, verse 13, uh, where John says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may what? That you may know that you have eternal life. That's John's purpose in this whole letter. And so even what he says here about the love of the brethren is meant to be uh, playing a part in helping us to know that we have eternal life. Look at verse 14. What does he say there? We know, uh, we know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Because we love the brothers or love the brethren. And then he says, whoever does not love abides in death. So one of the ways that John sets out to demonstrate the truth of this to us is by showing us that the command for believers to love one another is essential to the Christian faith and life. The command to love one another that we kind of take for granted, it's essential to the Christian faith uh, and, and life. It's one of the very first things that we are taught in the scripture upon coming to faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, it's so central to the Christian life from the very beginning, according to John here by the inspiration of the Spirit, that the absence of that brotherly love is actually indicative of the absence of a true and saving knowledge of Christ. 
It shows that we have not yet been born of God, regardless of what we may or may not profess to believe. You know, in fact, throughout John's, this letter, what does John say? If we say this, but don't do this, you know, we make ourselves a liar. It's, a lot of people claim certain things, and John is saying, well, saying it is one thing, it being true is another. And that's one of the things that John sets out to do in this, in this letter. Now, the first thing that John does in our text is point us back to the message we have heard from the beginning. And, and verse, look at verse 11 again. He says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning. And what is that message? That we should love one another. Notice, uh, not to be too nitpicky and grammatical here, but notice that little word for in the very first uh, word of that verse. Where he says He doesn't just say, oh, by the way, this is the message you've heard from the beginning. He says, for this is the message you have heard from the beginning. And, and in other words, he's showing how close the connection is between what he says about that command and what he said back in verse 10. In other words, what he says in verse 11, when he says, for this is the message you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, he's saying this proves what he said back in verse 10, where he said that the one who does not love his brother does not have eternal life and is not born of God. So this is the reason why he says that. In other words, why is it the case, John is telling us, why is it the case that the one who does not love his brother is not truly a child of God? It is because or for the message we've heard from the beginning is that we should love one another. It's that basic to the Christian life. It's that essential to the Christian life and foundational to it that if we fail to love each other, as believers in Christ, uh, we are demonstrating in some ways that we don't yet know the Lord and have not been born of God. Notice that once again, as he does throughout the entire letter, John seeks to refute false teaching and protect the church against its wicked influence. And when he does that, what does he do? What is one of John's, and really scripture in general, what is one of the, the main protections that we have against the incursion of false teaching? To remember what we've been taught from the beginning. That's really what we're, called, what we're called to do. We are to remember the truth of Christ as it was originally given to us. And that may sound very uh, elementary and, and simple, but it's not always what we do. And in fact, what, you know, what does false teaching really always tend, tend to seek to do? False teachers and false teaching seeks to lure us away from the simple truth of Christ. False teachers who Paul calls savage wolves in Acts chapter 20, verse 30, what does he say they do? He says they speak twisted things in order to draw the disciples away after themselves. And he likens them as wolves. They didn't seem like wolves. They probably seemed rather nice and all kinds of things that might make people want to, to follow them. But Paul calls them wolves and says they speak twisted things, things that were not in accord with the truth they've heard from the beginning. And what do they typically do? They disparage the tried and true faith that was once for all delivered to the saints, as Jude says in Jude verse 3. And what do they try to put in its place? Half-truths, lies, novelties, new things, strange things, as, as Paul says, twisted things. And when you say twisted things, what, what does that have the idea of? It, it has the idea of, of elements of the truth being involved but twisted. And so in some part, there's a slight ring of truth to it, but they add or detract something from it uh, that is essential to the Christian faith. 
That's why, for instance, earlier in the letter, John said something similar. First John 2, verse 24, he says this, Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. Let what you have heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you have heard from the beginning, the truth of Christ that is, if that abides in you, he says, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. That's how important abiding in the truth of Jesus Christ is. And so here in our text, he kind of returns once again to that similar theme. He reminds us that those of us who believe in Christ, uh, he reminds us that we have heard from the beginning the message that we should love one another. We should love other believers in Christ. And we have to remember this and keep this in mind. And this will, if we do that, this will guard us against many of the heretics and false teachers and cults of our own day that would seek to turn us against the true love of the brethren in favor of a false church. That's what, they're te- that's what they're trying to do. When they get you to depart from the faith, one of the things they're doing is getting you to, to not love the brethren, to leave the brethren, to leave your family in Christ. The love of the brethren really is basic to the Christian faith and life. This was the explicit teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ as well as the apostles. There are so many verses that demonstrate this, like we could spend half the morning going over them. I won't do that, but I'll give you a few In John chapter 13, verses 34 to 35, the Lord Jesus taught his disciples saying this. He said, a new commandment I give to you. What is it? That you love one another. He says, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. And again, we'll say this again later on, but this isn't some emotional, sentimental, nonsensical version of love that is so common in our day. He doesn't just say have fuzzy feelings about each other. Some of us, that doesn't happen very easily, right? That's not, it would be a hard thing to do. Uh, but he says, love one another, but then how? Eat just as I have loved you. Well, that's a tall order. Jesus did not love his disciples in just some mere sentimental, emotional uh, kind of way. He laid down his life for them, as John even tells us in our in our text. And then he adds, by this the world will know, or really he says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. In other words, they'll see the likeness. They'll, they'll know that, that your profession of faith is, is real when they see you loving one another sacrificially. They'll know there's something really to this Christianity thing. Even if they don't believe it, they'll know that person's a Christian. They're not just talking it. They don't just claim one thing and do another. They actually are a disciple of Christ. So notice that new commandment that Jesus gave, which is really based in the Old, Old Testament as well. It's not just our Christian duty, although uh, it, it is that. But Jesus presents it there as being persuasive proof to outsiders that we really are followers of Christ. It's by our sacrificial love for one another in the body of Christ, that all people will know that we are his disciples. I'll I'll leave this to your own looking up and reading maybe this afternoon, but this is what we see at the end of of chapter 2 of the book of Acts on the day of Pentecost. I know I keep coming back to this passage over and over again, right? Peter preaches the gospel that really all the apostles did. 3,000 people, 3,000 souls were added to the church that day. And what did they do? Immediately, it's, it's almost as if they weren't even needed to be told to do it. They, devote, they devoted themselves to public worship, the, the, the apostles' teaching, the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. And then what happened? 
I'm paraphrasing, you'll have to read it on your own, but, but they suddenly started caring for one another to such a degree that people were selling property and giving to those in the church that had need. And what was the result of that? Everybody around them, they, 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 uh, the grace, they, they came into favor of the eyes of all the people, it says, and day by day the Lord saved those uh, more people, those who were being saved. So the people around them saw something real was going on there, Talking about revival, that was a revival in some ways. And they believed the gospel, many of them did. Uh, the apostles taught the same, the same things. For example, the apostle Paul in Romans 12.10 writes this, Love one another with brotherly affection. And then he says, outdo one another in showing honor. So love one another with a brotherly affection. Likewise, the author of Hebrews, we don't know who that, that was. Some think it's the apostle Paul. Uh, Hebrews 13.1 says, simply put, let brotherly love continue. The Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians says, as dearly beloved children, we are to walk in love. He connects the fact that we're children of God with loving each other. 1 Peter 1.22-23, the Apostle Peter puts it this way, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And then he adds, why? Why should you do that? Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. So John uh, and Peter both connect being born again with brotherly love, with loving others in the church. Now again, notice that he says, since we have been born again, or because we have been born again by the Spirit of God, that is why we are to and must love one another. What does that mean? New life in Christ brings forth a new love for our family in Christ. So let those of us who have believed on Christ for salvation be devoted to the truth of Christ, even as we have heard it from the beginning, so that we are not led astray by those who are wolves in sheep's clothing. Well, the second thing we should take note of in our text, uh, it's easy to kind of look right past it and kind of uh, presume upon it, but we should look at our Christian duty to love one another. If it's the message we've heard from the beginning, we should take this message rather seriously and take it to heart. Uh, as Hebrews 13.1 says there, let brotherly love continue. If this is so basic to the Christian life that it was consistently taught from the very beginning by Christ and his apostles alike, then we are duty-bound to make it our sincere aim to love one another in the body of Christ. It's one of those things that's easy to talk about, but it's not always uh, so simple that we do it. And so I'll ask this morning, just uh, rhetorically, but for your own sakes to think about, do we love the brethren here? Do we in this church love each other and love our fellow believers elsewhere as well? Do you sincerely love your brothers and sisters in the Lord, in the body of Christ. And as, and as verse 18 says, not just in word or in talk, but in deed and in truth. It's easy to, well, I, I guess I shouldn't say that. Sometimes it's hard to even say it, but you know, sometimes we say these things and we talk about them. We tell someone we love them maybe, or we talk about loving other people, but do we actually do it? Is it just talk? In some ways, John defines brotherly love for us in, in many ways. And now in our text and in this chapter, he defines it both negatively 
And positively, in verses 12 to 13, John writes the following. He says, and maybe when we were reading this, you thought, well, why does he bring that up? But he says, verse 12 and 13, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. So he defines what love isn't, negatively that is, is to not be like Cain who murdered his brother. Now that, that may seem like a weird place to start, and it might seem like a pretty low bar. You know, if that's all it takes to love your brother is to not kill them, I think we can all check that box, right? Well, you know, you should be happy I didn't kill you. You know, obviously, obviously I love you, or I would have taken you out a long time ago. You know, that, that kind of thing. Um, that's not really what he's saying. You know, the, the standard is not just refraining from bloodshed and from violence against them, uh, which we usually does not seem all that difficult, I hope, for most of us. Uh, but it's not really John's point, is it? It, it? It's kind of the extreme version of it, but what's not really his point? Why did Cain murder Abel? You know, I thought about having uh, Rob read uh, Genesis 4 this morning instead of Joshua 5, but I thought we should stick with Joshua 5. I trust that in many, for many of us, maybe most of us here, we've read uh, the account in Genesis 4. Um, but why did Cain murder his brother? You know, in some sense, you could say John gives us one reason, but he really gives us two, doesn't he? He gives us two, two reasons. First and foremost, he murdered Abel, his brother, because Cain was, quote, of the evil one. In other words, John is still sticking with the same theme of distinguishing between the children of God and the children of the devil that he started in the verses prior to our text. Cain, although he was the offspring of Adam and Eve, Cain was a child, spiritually speaking, of whom? The evil one, the serpent, the devil. That is who, his, that's who he was a child of. And Abel was a child of God. And you might recall these, these, these two people, or two peoples, both, really. Ultimately, this passage talks about the devil and the Lord Jesus Christ. But in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, uh, the Lord prophesied and spoke ahead of time of two peoples and two individuals uh, that would be in enmity against each other. Genesis 3.15, we often call this the first instance of the gospel in scripture. And this is when God is pronouncing the curse from the fallen sin on the serpent. He says, I will put enmity or strife between you and the woman. And then he adds, and between your offspring and her offspring. He, individual, he shall bruise your head or crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, it, it's, there's a kind of a double meaning in some ways here. In a, in a broad sense, he's talking about the people of God and the people of, of the evil one throughout history, starting in Genesis chapter 4. which Genesis chapter 4 is the first example of that. And it should shock us, not just the violence of a, of a brother murdering his brother, but it's demonstrating the truth of this enmity. It's quite the enmity to kill your brother uh, that was prophesied in Genesis 3.15. Why did Cain kill Abel? Because he was a child of the evil one. He was the seed, spiritually speaking, of, of the serpent. You know, if you, if you look on your own to Genesis 4, you read of Cain and Abel. Now, they were, they were both the offspring of, of Adam and Eve. Biologically, they were of the same parents, the same family. And yet one was of the devil and one was of God. 
Cain demonstrated that he was a child of the devil by murdering his brother. And so John tells us not to be like Cain in murdering or even hating our brothers, which is the root of murder. In fact, those who hate believers are also of the evil one and of the world, verse 13. And why do they hate genuine believers in Christ? For the same reasons that Cain hated his brother and murdered him. One, he's of the evil one and evil was of God. And two, their own deeds are evil and the deeds of genuine believers are righteous, even if not perfectly so. That has always been, those have always been the reasons when push comes to shove for this hatred of the world against God's people. And so I ask again this morning, do you love your, your fellow believers in the Lord? Do you love other Christians or, do, or does their holiness of life offend you? Do you seek to avoid them like the plague? You know, my, I remember years ago, uh, I think I've mentioned this before, but I don't know who thought of this quote, but years ago when my dad's co-workers gave him a Bible, and I don't know, unfortunately, that he has read it much, if at all, but I remember reading on the inside cover, and I forget his friend's name, but his friend was a Christian, and he wrote on the inside of the book. He said, either, either this book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. And I, I've thought about that many times ever since, and I think it, it's, it's, that's not a verse in the Bible, but it's a truth in the Bible in many ways. And I think we're seeing some of that demonstrated here, uh, even, in, even in our text. You know, if, if, if we love our brothers and sisters in the Lord, we will spend time with them. And if we don't, why is that? Why would we do that? The standard of love is not just negative, is it? In some ways, that would make it a lot easier. As long as I don't do X, Y, or Z, I must be doing, doing okay. Um, you know, we learned recently, a few weeks ago, we looked at the Sixth Commandment, the commandment against murder. And we saw then that to obey the Sixth Commandment against murder means more than just refraining from harming other people. It also means doing what we can positively to preserve their life, doesn't it? There's a positive and a negative. Well, John gives us the positive side it's just after our text, but we'll read it uh, ahead of time here. In verses 16 to 18, what's the positive standard of loving of the brethren? He says, verse 16, by this we know love. How? That he, that is Christ, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And then he gives us a, 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 a concrete example. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's a rhetorical question. He's saying it doesn't. How, how does God's love abide him, in him? Little children, he says, let us not love in word or talk, but how? In deed and in truth. So again, John and the Bible in general does not talk about love as just some mere emotional or sentimental notion. Uh, it involves action. It involves commitment to others for their good. Now, what's the standard of love that you and I as believers are to follow? It's the example of Christ. And what exactly did he do in particular? That he laid down, John says, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So the cross of Jesus Christ is the standard of love. Even as Christ laid down his life for our salvation, we are to imitate that example in some ways in laying down our lives for the sake of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Now, most of us 
thankfully will not be asked to go quite that far. Most of us will never actually lay our lives down for, for someone else, although we might, you never know. Uh, but, you know, we can't, we can't claim to be willing to do that. You know, we often might talk a good game. Oh, I'd be willing to die for so-and-so. But we can't really claim to do that if we're not even willing to part with the world's goods for the sake of somebody in need. And so I'll ask this, you know, let me ask then, when was the last time that your love for your brothers and sisters in the Lord cost you anything? Do we actually take concrete steps to help those who are in need? I'll, I'll say this, as a pastor, I thank God that I know that many of you do things that, that aren't heralded. You don't toot your own horn, but you do many things to care for those uh, in the church that are in need in various ways. And that is a blessing that glorifies and pleases the Lord Jesus Christ it is a commendable thing. And I think it also demonstrates to both you, both you yourselves and to the world around you that you are a child of God and a disciple of Christ. And that should strengthen your assurance. It's one of the things that John would have us to look at and say, oh, you know, God really is doing something in me. God really has made me a new creation, whether or not you actually feel like one all the time or, or not. Now, I'll say this in many ways. It may seem like I'm preaching to the choir, and I, I kind of am. Uh, but it must be said that it's impossible. It's impossible to truly love the brethren if you never spend time with them. You know, we have uh, many of our, our, our members and, and loved ones are watching online even this morning, and we appreciate that. Many of them are unable to join us. That's a totally different thing. We're not talking about that at all. But as far as it is in our ability to spend time with them on the Lord's Day, we should be doing that. We can't play claim to love the Lord's people and love the Lord if we don't ever spend time with God's people. It's impossible and that goes first and foremost for the Lord's Day, but includes other time as well. It's not just Sundays, but we should start at least there. And it always brings to mind the words of Hebrews chapter 10, uh, verses 23 to 25. It says this, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Holding fast the confession of our hope. Uh, I, I know this is something that we all, maybe many of us tend to do in our not so great moments. We have this, this habit, I think, sometimes of interpreting scripture, uh, most of scripture, in a very individualistic way. Like he, the writer of Hebrews is just talking to me. Now he is talking to me, but he's talking to the church. He's not just talking to me, myself, and Jesus. He's talking about the gathered, the gathered church. Holding fast the confession of our hope. He doesn't say holding fast our hope. It includes that. He says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. The confession of our hope, by definition, involves the gathered church. We confess our hope together as, as a people. And the writer of Hebrews, whether it was Paul or somebody else, closely associates considering how to stir one another up to love and good works and confessing our hope with meeting together for worship. He even says, encouraging one another. There. We are to consider one another, to, to encourage one another. We are to confess our hope and hold fast to that. 
And so what does that mean? To do any of that means we spend time with each other, especially in public worship. We really aren't holding fast our, the confession of our hope without wavering if we don't gather. We certainly aren't considering how to stir one another up to love and good works if we don't meet together. And we certainly aren't encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near if we don't spend time with one another, primarily in worship. Well, last but not least, the love of the brethren is not just a duty to be observed, although it is that. It is also, and this is really John's primary purpose in bringing it up, I believe, it's also an evidence of eternal life. It's not a flashy evidence. It might not be the thing we would hope to see as evidence, but it is one of the evidences of having eternal life. Martin Lloyd-Jones puts it this way. He says, we should love one another, quoting the text. That is the exhortation, and yet he, that is John, and yet he puts it in such a way that it becomes quite plain to us that this question of loving one another is not only a duty, it is also a test. For as he goes on to say, if we do not love one another, we are not children of God. It's both. It's a duty and it is a test of whether or not we know the Lord. It's a test of whether or not we possess by faith in Christ, actually possess eternal life. In verses 14 to 15, John speaks of this in terms, kind of dramatic terms, of someone passing from death to life. Uh, Verses 14 and 15, he says, We know that we have passed out of death into life. How? Simple, because we love the brothers or love the brethren. Whoever does not love abides in death. In other words, they have not been born again. They do not have new life in Christ yet, if that is the case. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In other words, John is is using the same language that Jesus did in the Sermon on the Mount. When he talks about Cain murdering his brother, he brings it up because it's about hatred. Hatred is the root cause of murder, hatred being the opposite of love. So if you are a believer in Christ this morning, your sincere love for the brethren should be evidence that you have passed out of death into life. It is evidence that you have eternal life in Christ abiding in you. John Stott puts it this way, let the world hate. We do not hate but love. Moreover, the fact that we love our brothers gives us a good ground for certainty that we possess eternal life. The fact that we love our brothers gives us a good ground for certainty that we possess eternal life. And that's really the point of the whole letter, is that we might have certainty, we might know that we have eternal life through faith in Christ. What an encouragement I hope this is to you who believe this should be, for for every sincere believer, should be an encouragement. You know, I think very often in our not-so-great moments, we are tempted uh, to, to look for kind of the mountaintop spiritual experience of some kind or maybe some kind of a sign gift. I don't know what you might look for. Uh, we, we look for different things, a lot of times unbiblical things, to serve as evidence of our faith, to serve to bolster our weak sense of assurance. Uh, but looking for some kind of uh, you know, ecstatic mountaintop experience is not, not the way the scripture tells us to go about it, is it? You know, you ever have one of those things? Maybe you went to a retreat or something and you have this big spiritual high, then you come back down 
maybe a literal hill sometimes. Well, all of our retreats are up on hills in California. But, you know, you, you come back down the hill, and then you come back in real life, you know, normal life hits you in the face again, and you're right back where you started. And you're struggling with the same sins, and you're wondering, oh, do I know the Lord or not? Well, sometimes we're looking for the wrong things. We're looking for assurance in all the wrong places. Like sounds like a country song, right? Um, and yet, what does the scripture tell us to do? What does the Bible actually teach us? What does the scripture say? It says in 1 John, if we hold the truth of Christ, if we seek to sincerely, although imperfectly, obey God's commandments, and if we genuinely love our brothers and sisters in the Lord, this is all the proof that we should look for and need in order to assure our hearts that we really are children of God and possessors of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. They're very simple things. They're not flashy things. They're not exciting things. They're not fantastic things. They're not things that will shock anyone. You know, when you're, when you're gathered together, you know, telling your family or neighbors about it, uh, they're not going to go, wow you, wow, you hold to the truth and you obey God's commands. Nothing flashy or, or impressive about it. But these are the things by which the scripture encourages us as believers in Christ to look to to bolster our assurance, to bolster the fact and give us grace that we might know that we have eternal life through faith in Christ. May the Lord Jesus work in us what's pleasing in his sight by his spirit that you and I might grow in our love for each other, our love for the brethren, and also because of that, grow in our sense of assurance and all that to the glory of God. Amen.